March 28, 2009. A Big East showdown between Villanova and Pittsburgh has come down to the wire, and a spot in the Final Four is on the line. Tied at 76, five and a half seconds to go. The Wildcats inbound the ball from the opposite baseline. All eyes are on junior point guard Scotty Reynolds. Reddick lobs it into Cunningham. Who gives it to Reynolds? Four seconds, three seconds. Reynolds drives, shot, got it! He got it! Villanova wins! Villanova wins! And Villanova is going to the Final Four! Once a four-star recruit out of Herndon, Virginia, Reynolds has been the face of the program since arriving on campus. As a freshman, Reynolds finished as the team's second-leading scorer, closing out the campaign with a career-high 40-point outburst en route to being named the Big East Rookie of the Year. As a junior, after leading the Wildcats to their first-ever 30-win season and first Final Four appearance in nearly 25 years, Reynolds looks poised for a long NBA career but elects to return to school for his senior season. Further improving his stock, Reynolds leads the team in scoring and finishes his career just 21 points shy of Kerry Kittle's program record. The Wildcats finish second in the conference and earn a two-seed in the NCAA tournament, but ultimately fall victim to St. Mary's in a second-round upset. For his efforts, Reynolds is named to the 2010 AP All-American first team. After all the success and all the accolades, Reynolds is only projected as a late second round draft pick. The big night comes and goes. Scotty Reynolds' name is never called. From Studio Spaz, in association with the Quinnipiac University Sports Journalism Department, this is Jump Ball stark examination of men's college basketball, past, present, and future. This is part three, a degree of uncertainty. On that night, Reynolds became the first and remains still the only AP All-American to not be selected in an NBA draft. Many analysts described Reynolds as a shooting guard trapped in a point guard's body, even though Stephen Curry, who was drafted only one year earlier, is the same size. As a matter of fact, many of the concerns regarding Curry and Reynolds were the same. Undersized. Not a true point guard. Average defender. Lack of athleticism. Can't be relied on to lead. The biggest difference was that while Reynolds was a solid scorer, Curry was and still is an elite scorer. With that, Curry is now a two-time NBA MVP and three-time NBA champion, currently in his 11th season with the Golden State Warriors. Reynolds has never played in an NBA game. He has played professionally overseas, in Italy, the Philippines, Turkey, the Czech Republic, Israel, Russia, Croatia, Slovenia, Greece, and presently in France. 
He even spent a year in the G League and was an all-star. But the NBA never came calling. Reynolds' All-American story is unique, but his reality is all too familiar. 21% of men's college basketball players will go pro, the majority of which will play internationally. Only 1.2% of men's college basketball players will make it to the NBA. That's it. And neither of these figures takes into account playing time, longevity, or income. When I spoke with ESPN analyst Seth Greenberg, this misrepresentation was very concerning. Sometimes players are so interested in getting to the league, there's a difference in getting to the league and staying in the league. Here's the problem is you're going to have kids in high school who think they're pros, stop going to class, and then think a lot, of, a lot of people are going to lose an opportunity to have incredible experiences, build their brand, continue to improve, uh, network, develop relationships. So I, I, what I'd like to see is the NBA and, and college basketball to work together uh, to build a bridge that's in the best interest of these young people. As it stands, the new G League Academy might not be that bridge. However, there is a new group working on just that. A new league called the Professional Collegiate League, or PCL, has quietly entered the scene. It hasn't received a lot of media coverage, but some of the names involved certainly raise a few eyebrows. Co-founded by attorney Ricky Vellante and antitrust economist Andy Schwartz, both of whom are chief executive officer and chief innovation officer, respectively, the esteemed list of executives also includes 15-year NBA veteran David West as chief operating officer and director of basketball operations. The league also boasts 30 accomplished advisory board members, including legendary wide receiver and NFL Hall of Famer Terrell Owens and acclaimed broadcast journalist Soledad O'Brien. Wanting to know the league's origin story, I reached out to Ricky Volante. It was started with myself and Andy Schwartz. The way he initially laid it out to me was, okay, you know, the NCAA and its member institutions are an economic cartel. They've agreed to come together and price fix. Historically speaking, there's four ways to, to attack an economic cartel. And that's through legislation, litigation, unionization, or competition. Litigation is costly, takes a long time, and given the major suits that he'd been involved with, hadn't brought the, the wholesale change that he thought it could, even when time after time, you know, the Supreme, or not the Supreme Court, but uh, the Supreme Court kind of de facto, but more so the Ninth Circuit in these various cases, determined that the NCAA was, um, was committing antitrust violations. So... They kept saying that, but then when it came around to the recourse and, and the actual uh, punishment that they would receive, it was pretty much a slap on the wrist or there would be the whole, but we think amateurism is, is noble. So, you know, we'll kind of keep this in place. We don't think we want to blow up the whole system type of, of verbiage included in there. And so he got frustrated by that. At the point that we came together, legislation seemed impossible. Um, I still don't think it's going to provide the outcomes that people think it's going to provide, uh, but because politics, it gets messy. And then unionization and, and uh, coming together on that side of things, we had Northwestern, you know, 2014, NLRB local board approved the unionization of the team. And then once it got bumped up to, to the national NLRB board, 
um, they basically punted it and said, this isn't our responsibility or, or our decision to make. And so that left competition of those four options. And we felt it would be a tough path, but that if we were successful, the way to bring wholesale change to college sports would be to, to compete with the NCA and establish a new league that would have drastically different rules. Schwartz was the case manager for the plaintiff's economic experts in O'Bannon versus the NCAA, and the economic expert for the Keller versus Electronic Arts Settlement class. Both were filed in 2009 and argued that athletes should be entitled to compensation for NIL. The main focus was the video game company Electronic Arts, or EA, who produced a series of sports games rooted in college football, basketball, and baseball. While the NCAA only licensed program names, trademarks, and stadiums, EA took it upon themselves to recreate active rosters for each release. While the player names differed, the caricatures, including height, weight, skin tone, as well as position and jersey number, were identical to the real-life players. The plaintiffs won both cases, earning a $60 million settlement from EA and dissolving the video game series. But back on campus, player merchandise continues to be sold. Ricky had a really striking observation about this. No matter how many times the NCAA is determined to be in the wrong, even in a court of law, amateurism and the student-athlete are still protected as quintessential or noble to maintain the status quo. That's not progress. The PCL is trying to change that. We wanted it to be very clear what we're doing. Professional collegiate league. You, there is no ambiguity in that sense of <laughs> clearly these people are paying college athletes. <laughs> so we, we wanted that to be very, very clear. The initial startup will feature eight teams in eight East Coast cities, the selection of which was very meticulous. Between the DMV, uh, which you know, Northern DC, Maryland, Virginia, Triangle area, um, and then the Raleigh Triangle area between Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, um, and even up into Winston-Salem. Those are possibly the two best areas for basketball talent in the country. And so we wanted to be where a lot of the players are already at that we're gonna be recruiting from. And then also historically speaking from a recruiting decision standpoint, Players from the Midwest, players from Texas, players from Canada have generally been more willing to go East than West in their decisions. Now that might be partly because the Pac-12 has become sort of a weak, the weak of weakest of the five power five conferences. But again, we wanted to be where players are already willing to go uh, and be where players are already coming from and be in markets that have specific basketball interests and be in markets that have suitable venues and a lot of educational options. Yes, he said education options. Instead of ditching the educational model, the league is embracing it. Operating primarily during the summer, players will be able to balance competition and the classroom, stressing the importance of investing in the future. Volante fully expects to have players who pursue professional basketball, but with no guarantee of long-term success, the merit of education cannot be overlooked. What do you really have to stand on 
when you're done with your playing career, once that stops, you have a very limited window of relevancy after you retire. And once you're outside of that window of relevancy, especially if you're you know, not a superstar, nobody cares. You know, you're not going to get that treatment that you might have gotten for all of those years as a top athlete, whether in high school, college, or the pros. And so at that point, really all you have to fall back on is, you know, whatever you've learned along the way. And if you ended up in basket weaving and space bar classes where you walk in, hit the space bar and you get an A, you know, what, what do you really have then at that point? And again, that, that is the, as of it, as college sports currently exists, that is the trade-off. You come and play for us, we give you an education. And so if they're not holding up their end of the bargain and giving that education, then what is the athlete really getting out of it? Academic standards in big money college athletics are widely scrutinized. The first athletic scholarship, a contradiction in itself, dates back to 1956 and was introduced by the NCAA in an attempt to dissuade booster payments and other backdoor agreements with players, which had been rife up to that point. Unfortunately, this was only a band-aid. The 2019 figures in the Digest of Education Statistics, an annual report published by the National Center for Education Statistics, shows that average tuition, including room and board and other fees, amongst all four-year institutions, has drastically outpaced inflation. In 1982, the average cost was $4,400. Today, that would be around $10,500. However, students today are paying nearly three times that, at just over $28,000. That puts the value of a scholarship at six figures, certainly a worthwhile asset. But there is a drawback. Scholarships are not a liquid asset. For example, if an athlete earns a full ride for scholastic achievement, they cannot cash out their athletic scholarship. It has no monetary value. One award would simply override the other. For someone like Shabazz Napier, that means no extra money in hand for food. And although a scholarship is worth 550% more than in 1982, broadcast rights for March Madness have skyrocketed 7,000% during that same time period. By that metric, players should be compensated $280,000 in addition to their scholarship. All of this contributes to the environment unearthed by the FBI. If schools and conferences are generating tens of millions of dollars in profits, and it's not going to the players, then where does it go? Coaches, administrative staff, and infrastructure. Looking at Power 5 expenses, more capital is directed toward those three buckets than toward players. In 2017, 4,400 coaches' salaries amounted to 18% of all spending, while student aid for 45,000 players came in at 14%. The highest sector of all, though, comprising 22% of Power 5 expenses, was for money spent on facilities and equipment. To the ire of buyers, public institutions are all nonprofit organizations. Yes, you heard that right, nonprofit organizations, which means that they have to spend or reinvest any profits in order to break even. For many of the highest profiting schools, 
That means regular upgrades to arenas, stadiums, and other facilities, putting them on par with professional leagues. At the University of Texas, that amounted to $10,000 lockers. That's $10,000 for each locker. At the University of Alabama, that amounted to LED lights capable of displays on par with the Empire State Building. And at Clemson University, that amounted to a 24-seat high-definition movie theater and putt-putt golf course at their practice facility. This is wrong. In the PCL, all of that money will go to the athletes. Player salaries will range from $50,000 to $150,000 plus benefits. In addition to compensation, players will have the freedom to sign individual endorsement deals and engage in group licensing deals. They will also be provided cutting-edge, high-performance training and nutritional programming, along with ample workshops and seminars, such as financial literacy. And with education being such an important component, all participants will be eligible to receive a five-year scholarship for the college or university they choose to attend. Lawyer and player advocate Tammy Gaw, who is another of the esteemed advisory board members, sees a whole new world of educational opportunities for the athletes. The PCL plays in the summer. And there's a couple of really key positives about that. First, it doesn't take time out of the classroom. So during the year, you are a student. It also allows you to do things like take internships, do study abroad programs. Uh, those, those kind of things are very difficult for, if, if not impossible, for athletes to do now because of year-round demands on their time. The other thing that's helpful is uh, they, they're able to do classes that may center around science and STEM related things. Because a lot of times what you see in sciences and engineering are labs and they're three hour labs that are really difficult for full-time college athletes. Ricky completely agrees. Virtually any STEM degree is off mm -hmm. the table the moment that you say that you're, you're an athlete. And anything that requires labs or any sort of evening classes, you know, that's going to result in missing, you know, from the revenue generating sports, if you're on a top caliber team, you might miss anywhere from 25 to 40% of your classes. You know, I was a good student. I, I was an athlete in college. I was strategic in the classes that I took, but had I missed 25 to 40% of my class, I don't care how smart you are. You're not going to do very well in that class. You just, and even if you do, even if you do well from a grade standpoint, you're not going to get out of it what the non-student athlete in your class gets out of it that was in class every day. Even if an NCAA athlete receives their education for free or at a discount, it comes at a high cost. The 2015 Growth, Opportunities, Aspirations, and Learning of Students in College, or Goal Study, conducted by the NCAA, showed that the average Division I basketball player missed over two classes per week, and nearly a quarter missed three or more. Most classes meet only two to three times a week, which means athletes lose out on nearly 50% of instruction, just like Ricky said. Athletics departments do staff academic advisors and tutors to help navigate this, but they can only be so effective. And Tammy pointed out that the same challenge applies to student managers and trainers. 
I had to take my cadaver anatomy class in the summer because I couldn't work it around college football. And I wasn't even one of the players. Athletic departments have long been accused of denigrating the education of athletes. In 2010, North Carolina became embroiled in an academic fraud scandal after allegations of questionable practices came to light, including a disproportionate number of independent study offerings and unauthorized grade changes. Mary Willingham, a former learning specialist for student-athletes, spoke out against her employer, stating that some athletes were illiterate and should never have been admitted in the first place. An independent investigation reported that 3,100 students over an 18-year period had been enrolled in non-existent classes and received fabricated grades. Rashad McCants, the same Rashad McCants who fell victim to Peggy Ann Fulford, went on ESPN's Outside the Lines and admitted to taking such classes and submitting classwork prepared by others. McCants, a pivotal member of the 2005 men's championship team, received a lot of backlash for speaking out and damaging the reputation of the university. But the harsh reality is that coaches are tied to results on the court and not in the classroom. Many high school coaches are required to be educators, working primarily inside the school and taking on coaching duties as an adjunct, as was the original intention of sports. Roy Williams, however, is employed solely as the head coach of the North Carolina men's basketball team. Athletes do have to meet GPA requirements to remain eligible, but at North Carolina, only a minimum cumulative GPA of a 2.0, or C-, is mandatory to graduate. By NCAA rule, freshmen need only meet 90% of that threshold, that is, a 1.8 GPA, or D+. To counter this and rise above minimum standards, coaching contracts are loaded with incentives, but those incentives quickly result in a conflict of interest. They want you in easy classes that will keep you eligible, qualify them for their bonuses, and minimize your overlap with your practice game and travel schedule. This completely devalues a scholarship and strips the athletes of all their worth. If athletics were originally intended to be an adjunct to academics, it seems the roles are now reversed. The PCL will give back that academic freedom. And that's not all. We hope that our athletes unionize and that we eventually one day do have a, a collective bargaining agreement. You know, that's not something that we're shying away from because we feel it's important for the athletes to have that representative element to be looking out for what's best for them. The PCL is on track to debut next year, and if successful, women's basketball could be right around the corner. Calls to revisit the collegiate sports model have long gone unheeded. Even with such an intractable past, the NCAA has spurned change. But in the midst of a global pandemic, the time to change is now. And this time, there's no avoiding it. Next time on Jump Ball. NCAA came out within the last hour and a half, canceling the men's and women's college basketball tournaments. There will be no March Madness in 2020. In my opinion, if we have to bring our players back, test them, because we need to continue to budget and run money through the state of Oklahoma. 
The problem that I see is with a system where the laborers are the only people that are not being compensated. The only two systems where I've known that to be in place is slavery and the prison system. Jump Ball is written and produced by me, Steve Zacco. Our music is composed by Hayden Olmsted. Special thanks to Molly Anity for editing and providing invaluable feedback. For more on this episode, please check out our website at jumpballpodcast.org. Jump Ball is a production of Studio Spaz.